Welcome to episode 70 of The Numbers Game. I'm Jason, and as always, I'm here with Nick and Marty. How are we going today, fellas? Going well, thanks, Jace. Where are you today? You look like you're tanned. You look like the sun's out. Where, where are you, my friend? Uh, mate, just enjoying a bit of time up in Port Douglas. Got some family up here, uh, Casey's uncle, my cousin Ash, but uh, and then just coincided with going to a client's wedding uh, over the last couple of days, it was a bit of a f- uh, few days of festivity. Sunday was the wedding. Uh, Monday was the pool floaty party. And it's safe to say, I think everybody overindulged a little bit. So it's uh, a little bit tender on the head today, guys. You might have to carry me a little bit. But um, yeah, enjoying the 31 and sunny every day, weather up in Port Douglas and Palm Cove. Yeah, just, just um, go to our YouTube channel and just check out what a few <laughs> days of festivity looks like. It's very entertaining from this end. Great to have you here, Jason. <laughs> Alive and well. Uh, I'm going fantastically well. Nick, how are you, my friend? I'm very well, mate. Unfortunately, not in Port Douglas, but um, it's actually just chatting to a young guy in the office who also went to a wedding on Sunday. So uh, obviously weekdays don't matter anymore. I don't know. Maybe it's been a while since I got married. So it seems to be Sunday, um, wash-up parties on Mondays. What's You're a bit younger than us, Jace. Maybe you can... Explain what's happening here. Monday to Friday, not a concern anymore for most people or? I think as well, look, you push back um, all of the two years of weddings that didn't happen with COVID. Um, People are trying to cram them in. I don't think the days matter anymore. You've got the backlog and yeah, I think think that's probably something to do with. Also, maybe it's a little bit cheaper on a Sunday. Who knows? I think uh, and venues just make it the most of getting people in anytime they can. To be honest, I I don't mind it. I, I do like the idea of the Sunday wedding. Um, I think it's a great idea. Takes away from the pressure of the Saturday, cruisy Sunday, a few drinks, bit of a uh, bit of fun watching friends get married. I think the the Monday wash ups a bit far, but uh, <laughs> each, each to their each to their own. I think I think we've got three years of catch up, so I think we should be investing in wedding company lads. I think it's uh, they've got a bit to catch up on, so. But everyone's alive and well, and that's a good sign. Well, today, mates, it's uh, we're back into obviously had Tom Boyd's episode last week uh, dropped. It was an amazing episode. Um, I hope you've had a listen to that one, Nick. You weren't able to be there for that one, but today we're moving on to a reading the play, and you are the star of the show, Marty. What have you got for us today? Yeah, well, today I thought I'd um, I was thinking of elite athletes after the Tom Boyd episode last week, and I just thought uh, Roger Federer retired in the last month and. But what really, really appealed to me was how classy he is off the court, not only on the court. Uh, We've got a guy who's obviously been at the prime of his game for a number of years, a couple of decades now. But last year, his earnings were $600,000 on court and his sponsorship dealings were nine, it was, I think it was a hundred million sponsorship altogether with his sponsor, which is just. Absolutely phenomenal. And he's only the sixth active sports person in the world to achieve the billion dollar mark in sponsorships. Wow. And I just thought, yeah, incredible stuff. Made decent money playing tennis, but he's utilized his business smarts and his personal brand to really take what he does as an income into other levels. And I thought there were some really good lessons in this. He was very patient in his career and he really went for premium sponsorship, uh, the likes of Rolex, Lint Chocolate. Uh, he's with Nike for a number of years as well. So he really set himself up to be that 
prestige personal brand where he's reaping the benefits of it. And he did this uh, interesting deal at the moment with Uniqlo that uh, – did I pronounce that right, Nick? Unique? Uh, uni- Uniqlo? Uniqlo. Uniqlo. Is that it, Jase? I think that's Don't it. Don't ask me, boys. Yeah, I, I like the way you said it first, Marty. <laughs> Uniqlo. 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 We'll go, we'll Uniqlo. go with that. Uniqlo. <laughs> but what was what was interesting because his Nike deal was ten million uh, per annum for ten years when he set that up, and he obviously restructured this new deal uh, with Uniqlo for in two thousand and eighteen, and he structured it for thirty million a year for the next ten years, which um, you know Nike wouldn't match that. Um, and their reasoning behind it was they thought Federer is a brand, the way he wears his clothes, his styling, his prestige, he will grow as an asset in time. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, how brilliant is that? This guy set himself up to the point that for the next 10 years there's going to be 30 mil uh, rolling in from one one sponsor. Um, and I also I like the way he thought. He thought about even in regards to player management, he thought it could be done better, so he started a player management company that represented himself but other mm. players as well. And it's not to say other players aren't benefiting as well. Like Nadal earns about 30 mil on the court per annum and gets about 38 mil in sponsorship off the court. Pretty good. But you're thinking that they're both coming to the end of their career and Federer looks like he's well and truly uh, set up. And this brings me to the idea of you know, the likes of basketballers like Michael Jordan, who at the pinnacle of his career in 1996 um, was was at his elite best. And yet in 2022, he's got a Nike deal on his Air Jordan shoes of $120 million a year. It's just, it shows you how that, that selection of quality premium branding can really pay off in, in the long term. But what I was thinking about, lads, and, and you can you, know, you can chime in on this, was a lot of times when I talk to people, let's bring it back to everyday people. We're talking Federer here. But so often people say that I can only you know earn the income I'm earning in my industry without thinking of other ways they could be potentially building assets and earning income um, separately based off their income. And I think people are always very much, uh, not not always, but a lot of the time you hear people limiting themselves to say, well, that's all I can afford. That's all I can earn in my industry. And it reminded me, that, and this goes for doctors, this goes for highly paid professionals every everywhere from everyday people. I've heard it across the board. And it always reminds me of one particular client of mine, uh, Wendy, I won't say her surname, but uh, she'll know who she is. She's a listener. But uh, Wendy, who, you know, she worked for the government, earning around 80 to 100 grand a year on, on her income. And she had a strategic plan that she was going to set up investment properties to take care of her um, into the future. I remember when I met her, she was about 47, 48 years of age. Um, she was a, a single woman at that time, you know, in a good job. And her plan of attack was she was going to buy properties in Kensington. And at the time, this is going back in 2000, 2001, you know, Kensington properties were about 160, 180 grand. People were saying they were overpriced back then. Uh, 20 years on, we sure as hell know that's not the case, as uh, usually happens with the property market, time in the game. Um, And she also bought investments in South Australia, which were subdividable, just straightforward, subdividable 
poems that uh, she cut off the back, then put the money into the front and earned the cash flow off the uh, off the back of it. So now to give you just some some context, you know, twenty years on after her going and doing her planning, um, she now generates two hundred thousand, double the amount of revenue out of her investment strategy uh, than she did in her own income, and you know, retired happily. You know, paid down a lot of debt and is in a very, very strong position. And I thought, I always admired her at the time. I was only about 29 at the time, 30 years of age. But I admired the fact she wanted to go outside of just her own unique job, which she was doing well at, to build something for herself as a secondary form of income or a secondary project. She educated herself. People thought she was crazy at the time. People were saying, don't over leverage, you know property market, testing times, as we're hearing in the market today. Um, and I just wanted to I wanted to put that to the listeners out there and draw on your comments, gents, in regards to you can do this. It might be another business. Uh, it might be an investment. It might be a side hustle in an area of expertise that you have. But don't cap yourself just because you feel like you're in a job and that's all you think you can earn. Um, Jace, have you seen this in regards to businesses that are diversifying into into side projects that are still very focused on what they do, but they have a separate revenue stream? Yeah, hundred percent, mate. And look, I think you know I really love what you said there about not not capping, not putting a ceiling on your earning potential, um, and really being open to exploring other ways you can use your time or your skills or your knowledge to to leverage that. And look, I mean, yeah, so many examples. I mean, look, the the basic examples these days is like the whole you know Airtasker, Uber, and all those things. Like people picking up some extra income by spending a couple of those extra hours doing other things you know after their normal work hours or on weekends but then you think about some of the i guess more sophisticated versions of that like um there was an accounting firm up in queensland so they're an accounting firm they were great accountants and the lady who ran that tanya tipman decided she wanted to build a, a business coaching um program so but she designed these modules um, business owners would sign up and they'd receive um, basically a work pack and they'd go through and, and once a month for like eight months or eight weeks I think the course was you'd do like an intensive program and you'd go in and do it and that ended up building that business up to the point where they were uh, acquired by a bigger bigger player in the market, not because they ran an accounting firm, but they had this side side business that was basically generating more income and making them more valuable than they'd ever been before. So if they'd just stuck to doing accounting, for example, um, it wouldn't have been as diversified or as valuable. And you can see that, you know, those the side hustle mentality or diversifying. I mean, look, one day I hope that the numbers game is uh, more lucrative than than our account, my accounting business and your finance business, boys. But uh, you know that we're we're having a crack. We're using our time, um, to, you know, to to put ourselves out there and do different things. Um, there, that's a couple of examples of where I've seen, you know, the the side hustle mentality. But then also, you know, what you guys probably come across more so, and and as do we, it's stacking your assets, right? It's not spending every dollar that you earn. It's putting it into the assets column. Now, whether that's buying stocks or shares, or you know, back in the day, some people probably made a lot of money off crypto. They had they were putting money away into different places, um, and that's where you can, as you said, you know, diversify your income strategy and grow your wealth in the future. But you got to start somewhere, and I think people people get carried away with the idea of like wanting it now. 
like it needs to be fast and you've got to be able to access that money or the or you know the effort you're putting in now but really it's what happens over the 10 or 20 years if you start to be smart now and and invest or, or put, stack some chips into the asset column you guys probably nick you might have seen some examples where people have uh, diversified invested side hustles as well oh definitely and i guess mainly on the investment side obviously being mortgage brokers and financial planners, we see a lot of people that um, get into property at a young age or in this lady's case, a little bit later in life. What I really like about this story and what you don't see much um, with what we do as mortgage brokers is a plan around that. So mm. I have in, in the past had countless clients who have bought investment properties because it was a good idea, because they feel like that's what they should do. Um, but with no real calculated plan on what that is going to do for, for them. They're ex- obviously expecting capital growth and that one day they could possibly sell that property and, um, and come out with some capital and that would put them in a better position. But it sounds like this lady that, that you knew, Marty, um, has gone into those properties, you knew she had a time frame that she was going to continue to work, had a debt reduction strategy on those properties, so she knew where she could get those properties to a cash flow positive position so that when she did retire, she had that income. Um, and it sounds like she's also understood how she can get extra value out of those properties. And you know, buying something that you can then subdivide and then putting that capital back into the original asset to get into a cash flow positive position is just a brilliant idea. And I think what a lot of people do is they buy properties, buy properties, buy properties, but they don't understand what is their long-term plan with that. So it's very simple to sit down and say, okay, I'm going to buy a property now. I've got 25 years of work left. Why don't I actually aim to pay it off or at least get into a cash flow positive position so that it can provide that income for me? I don't have to sell it when I retire. I can actually just keep it and take the income on it. And you very rarely see that. You just see people keep leveraging, keep buying. But um, you probably don't need to leverage and buy as much if you're more tactical on it. Um, and for you know, this lady, she's got herself into a position where she's created an income of 200 grand and I can guarantee you she strategized that out. Um, so she that's did. what I really like about this story. Yeah, it's, it's a great point, Nick. And, and I still remember uh, Wendy coming to me with that plan of what she wanted to accomplish in the next 17 years. And she, she had it modeled out. She'd been to, she specialized. She really focused on investment and finding ways how she could make that work. She had a genuine interest. Um, she had acquired knowledge based on her research and that was her plan of attack, that in 17 years' time, she wanted to make sure she doubled her revenues coming to her in retirement. And it's no different really to owning a business, right? An increase in revenues, having a business grow over time. And that's what people can do with property when they're thinking along those lines with the plan. And I've certainly seen the other end of the spectrum, like you said, Nick, in regards to people leveraging up and not being able to sleep at night and and even losing families over it because they've mm-hmm. always paid they've always placed themselves in a position where they have to make more money in their job to survive and maintain that portfolio whereas where Wendy was very different was she had a clear strategy case of how she was going to subdivide put that into the into the mortgage making sure she had low low loan to value ratios on that debt and with a debt reduction strategy to make sure by the time she was 65, she had very nominal, nominal debt. 
Um, so I just thought that was a great example for listeners to actually start thinking about what's your area of specialization. Uh, Roger Federer was tennis and he leveraged that specialization in different aspects that generated a great deal of wealth. Wendy did it as an everyday person on a solid income because she had that plan and she had that specialization. People thought she was crazy. I remember talking to her two years ago and she goes, I've shared this with other people and they just they don't understand where I'm coming from. It's, it's scary to them and, and that's because they haven't done the work. So we, we all have those areas and people just need to think about what is that area of specialization they can leverage for themselves. I think it's powerful. Yeah, and Nick, Innovate's probably an example. I mean, the, the f version one of Innovate, what you guys were doing many, many years ago was, was home loans. And then I guess what, what are the, the iterations you've made over the time to, to bring in financial planning and, and I guess asset finance? I mean, was that a deliberate thing for you, diversifying all those revenue streams? Yeah, yeah without, without a doubt. Um, and it was obviously diversification is risk mitigation as well, but it, mm. it was mainly you know, understanding that, okay, what's the most expensive part of our job and it's attracting clients. Now, if our clients like what we do and like the service we provide, well, why don't we provide more than one service to them? Mm. Um, and, but it had to be a service, uh, and we still have this these discussions today, it had to be a service that complemented the other service that we did. So for us, it's home loans, and then people get a home loan, and then they need um, some wealth or some insurance advice. Um, we have a lot of small business people on the books that uh, need home loans and wealth advice. Well, they all also need business lending. So... Mm. They're all kind of similar. Um, we're looking at another um, revenue stream at the moment, which will be general insurance. So, you know, um, public liability and, and, and this sort of stuff. So they're all things that are related and they, they're all kind of in the same gamut, if you ask me. Like we're not out there trying to um, sell cars or um, sell, sell, sell plants. We're very much sticking to financial services and um, and revenue streams that complement each other. There's almost a flow-on effect. Once you do one, you need to do the next one. So, um, yeah, so it's just leveraging our client base to make sure that we reduce the risk and, and, and produce more revenue. Yeah, no, and another way, like I was just thinking while you're talking out loud, it's great, great advice in regards to the diversification of risk and, and, and having complementary services to what you do as a business owner. Now, as an individual, if you're a top performer, in a company and you have a unique specialization that's really valued from the company, then um, you know you can look to buy into a shareholding in that company as well. Mm. So you're still generating your income as a highly valued uh, employee. But again, even investing in that company where you have that specialization could produce an asset. So let's say it's a, a 70,000 investment that could go towards a property or it could go towards you know, a business that you're already invested in that you're establishing your career as well. So it's just, it's just thinking outside the square of what it's been as to what it could be and to open up conversations to set up your future as well. Have you, do you see that a lot, Jace, with, with um, shareholding in companies like New Entrants? Yeah, it's definitely a growing space. I think um, there's been some tax concessions around bringing on employee shareholders um, and ESOP employee share option plans. 
Um, so I think a lot of um, smaller businesses and even the bigger ones as well have been doing it for a long time. I mean, my cousin worked at NAB and she's got a whole portfolio of NAB shares because every year they just slink you a couple of shares to keep you keep you involved, keep you invested. But at a smaller business level now, I'm definitely seeing a rise in the number of employees that are getting shares in the business that they're involved in. And um, I think it's great for, you know, team culture and the values of a place. I mean, if you if you want to run a business and retain your staff uh, in this day and age where it is, you know, the, the great resignation and, you know, the challenge of retention, it's becoming a tool that's that's very, very good to use to, to motivate your team. And look, and I think, yeah, as you said, from an employee point of view, if, if you are working at a place and, and you're a great contributor and you love what you do, that is another way for you to, you know, get that extra chip in the asset column. You've, you've got shares in the place of so the hard work you go and do during the day means that you're contributing to the value of, of your wealth growing. I love the financial planning space. Like like we know, Nick, like superannuation was a bit like mortgages 20 years ago. No one quite knew where they stood in regards to uh, their mortgages. They were all on intro rates and standard variables till the broking market came in and uh, really put people in an overall better position. But I feel like that's happening even in, with the superannuation contributions. People want to know more information about it. And it's not just a fund where I can't get to till I'm older. Uh, are you finding you know, younger generations now more actively involved with good professional help to build that aspect? Yeah, without a doubt. I think, um, and it's one of the things that you know, is obviously our passion is getting people across that stuff and ensuring that they are. Because when you do know what, what we know at a younger age, you can, mm. you, you, you can progress yourself. So, there's definitely a, a movement towards younger people wanting to understand their finances. And for most people, the biggest asset that they've got is their superannuation fund. So definitely saying that. Why is that? I'm not sure, to be honest. It's probably a combination of um, the awareness, uh, the government creating awareness. I think the younger generation has had super from day dot um, as far as their working life goes. So there's their balances get to a significant level reasonably quickly. Uh, we're earning a lot more money now than we used to, which means again our balances um, get to a, a bigger level versus you know my parents who didn't have super come in until later in life. So I think there's a few combinations, but yeah, to your point, definitely um, younger people are more across it, and so they should be. It's their income, and it's going to make a significant uh, impact on their retirement. And the way I, you know, I've probably said this a thousand times on this podcast, but the way I used to explain it to clients was. If the money was in your bank account, would you would you care about it, and would you want to know what it was doing? And the answer would always be yes. And I say, look at it the same way. It's your money. You just can't have it until your mid fifties. So, um, yeah. So definitely, there's a uh, a move towards people being across it and wanting to understand it, which is great. I think. Yeah, that's what I love about uh, Wendy's plan in regards to her properties. She'd do a valuation every year on those properties to see how much they'd increased. Uh, she would rent test every year to see whether she could create cash flow increases as well. It, it was very dynamic. It was a business outside of her role. Um, I'm interested, Jace, um, in regards to people setting up their self-managed super funds um, to control their own super, have you seen any increase in that? Because I know logistically there's a few more moving parts to get it set up, but I'm just out of genuine interest. 
Has that increased at all over the last few years that you've seen or has it remained pretty stagnant? Look, for, for our client base in itself, it's definitely a, a hot topic of conversation. It's growing. I mean, we our clients probably average 35 to 45. They're in that window. Um, they've come along the journey with us over the last five or so years. And as their businesses are growing and building and their wealth is growing, they're turning and looking at, well, actually, you know, as Nick touched on, one of the biggest things and one of the biggest assets you've got is your super fund and the money that's in there. But even if you can't access it, there's things you can do to spend it in a way that might you might, might be more attracted to. So we've got a lot of people that are interested in commercial properties, for example. Um, so they've started to have the conversations around setting up a self-managed super fund because they want to be able to buy commercial properties um, or residential properties in their self-managed super fund. Um, so it's definitely increasing. Um, and at the same time, just even the interest in general around super from, from younger all, everyone actually, just across the board, people are taking an interest in it. And if it's not to set up a self-managed super fund because that's not the right strategy for everyone, it is to actually just get it into a, um, get it managed in the right way to make sure that it's invested in the in the correct area for their that particular risk profile and the journey and the age of where they are in their their life cycle. Um, but I'm surprised about how many how many more conversations that we're having around super funds and self-managed super funds, but it's definitely definitely an increasing area that we're seeing lots of traction. Yeah, it's fascinating. The banks are sort of the mainstream banks have moved a little bit away from uh, doing funding around self-managed super funds with property, but there's still a, a number of lenders out there that are actually securitizing through the self-managed super fund for their commercial property. And again, it makes sense. You know, it's it's again. It's a third-party transaction because the company's taking out the, uh, you know, the the property, and we fund against that. So it makes sense if you're a business owner and you want to secure a property under your business that um, it just seems the most relevant way to set it up. Sometimes, and, and again, depends on individual circumstances and you know what what position the client's in at the moment. But we're seeing, like, I won't say which major lender, but some one major lender in particular that uh, does not want to be doing that type of funding is up around the eight, nine percent mark. And there's other mm. lenders out there that are funding properties in the self-managed super fund at around sixes. So it's quite um, a dramatic difference. And, um, mm. you know, again, we're always talking about get advice to save money, get good setups, but we're finding a fair bit of work in that space as well where people, again, they just want to have, you know, better rates and lower their costs overall. So... It's an area, if you need some advice in, uh, be sure to reach out and we'll certainly help you out there as well. On that note, Marty, this has been episode 70 of The Numbers Game. And I did want to wrap it up by giving a plug to say that if anyone out there has heard this episode and thought, geez, maybe I do need to do something to, you know, diversify my income streams, you know, get into the property market, make sure my super is looked after. Perfect opportunity to reach out to the team and innovate and have those conversations. Um, plenty of people in that team that would be raring to help you out and just absolutely up and about. And then on the tax side, obviously, Wendy would have had a great accountant over the years, making sure she was claiming everything that she needed to for her investment properties. So um, if you've got an opportunity and you want to talk tax, you know where to find us. Thanks for listening. Until next time. Game over, lads.